Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Why do you do it? Money? Mainly? There you go. Conversations about collaboration, episode 52. Christopher Mims joins me today. He is a tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal and the author of Arriving Today, From Factory to Front Door, Why Everything Has Changed, About How and What We Buy. We talk about logistics, the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the supply chain, despotic Taylorism, yes, that's a thing, and when things will go back to normal. Let's get it on. Christopher, where does this podcast find you? Right now, I am in my Garrett office in Baltimore, Maryland, in a little old mill town uh, where I wrote uh, the bulk of this book. So it's a bit of a homecoming. Let's get right into it. I I found it fascinating. I I consider myself reasonably learned about some of this stuff, but halfway through your book, I'm thinking to myself, I, I know nothing. Um, And I want to highlight a few key points and just see where it goes from there. Um, Inside the Amazon factory, and I actually went to one of the fulfillment centers in Phoenix two and a half, three years ago, and was just amazed at the size of it. I mean, you could read that something's big or look at a picture, and then you could walk around and see, my God, this thing is 15 football fields big or whatever the number is. Um, You write that consistency is more important than speed. Say more. So... At Amazon especially, but throughout the supply chain, um, for it to run smoothly, and this is, of course, part of the reason that it's just so foobarred right now, you want to know that you're going to get the right item at the right time. That is the most important thing because, of course, you you can always kind of uh, add more to the supply chain pipeline if you need a larger volume of material. Uh, but it doesn't so much matter whether or not Walmart is going to get goods, you know, a month from now or two months from now, depending on how fast the ship is sailing across the ocean to get it to Walmart's warehouses, so much as they know exactly when those goods are going to arrive. And that theme is true throughout the supply chain. And it's true at Amazon as well. That said, there are times when they have to hurry up, right? When you, when you click buy on Amazon it takes about 45 minutes for that order to go from, you know, your computer to into a box that's going to get shipped to you. Yeah. It seemed like when supply chain issues started to manifest, manifest themselves, people who knew more than I did talked about how the supply chain had been optimized for efficiency, not resiliency. Right. Um, were they wrong on that, or is that something that you're reporting also uncovered? It's definitely true. I mean, the supply chain has been, you know, these it's like all market systems. They're really trying to squeeze any excess out of it. Also, there is this kind of all permeating ideology of just-in-time everything, right? It comes from the whole just-in-time manufacturing principle, which, you know, as you know, came from, you know, Toyota's production system. And so that supply chain was so lean and could be so lean because changes in demand 
went up and down rather relatively smoothly and predictably. They were seasonal. And what's happened, though, is since you know May of 2020, Americans have really been on a shopping spree. They've been binging, and all of the money they were spending on vacations and going out and services has been pushed into goods. So when you increase spending on goods by you know, seven to 15%, depending on what point in the pandemic we're talking about. It's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods. That's why all of those container ships are stacked up outside of America's largest port on the West Coast in LA, because that represents all the stuff that we bought and that retailers think we are going to buy in the not too distant future. A lot of labor stories have been in the news lately, and you mentioned some about Amazon and unionization. And when I think about the strikes going on or the unrest, for lack of a better term, it makes me think back to a million years ago when I was at grad school studying labor relations. And in arriving today, you write about two companies from the outside that might seem that they have a lot in common, but upon further inspection, actually do some things pretty differently. I'm talking specifically about UPS and Amazon. Um, I know that UPS has got a pretty strong union and tends to pay more, whereas Amazon, yeah, it's raised wages, but I sure I could not be there as a packer or a picker uh, 10 hours a day. But um, talk a little bit about the differences between those two companies, for lack of a better term, philosophies when it comes to labor. So, and this, again, this is one of these things that's true throughout the supply chain. There's two ways to get performance out of people. Right. You can, there's sort of carrot and stick. And of course, all management is about the application of both. You know, the main difference is that um, at UPS, because their drivers belong to the Teamsters Union, their workers in general do, um, because UPS knows that it is responsible for those workers over the long term and responsible for their health insurance and their health care costs. Uh, and in turn, those workers tend to be pretty loyal. Um, that is a long-term relationship. So UPS is like, yes, we're going to optimize the heck out of everything you do. And we're going to make very high demands of, you know, what we openly describe as industrial athletes, but we're also going to give you a ton of safety training. And we're going to make sure that the burden is not so much that you're going to get injured really quickly because then we're still going to end up paying for that. Amazon's philosophy historically, I do believe this is changing, has been, Let's de-skill these jobs, which means let's use automation to make it so that somebody can be trained to do this job inside a day or so. And let's hire as quickly as we can. We will offer higher wages so that we can attract you know, the bulk of the, the labor pool of folks who are typically doing um, you know, low-skill uh, jobs that don't require college education. And we don't really care so much about turnover. Right. Like if we have 100 percent turnover per year, like fast food does, that's fine because people are kind of tend to be rotating between those jobs anyway. And maybe they weren't planning to stick around. Um, one impact of that has been that Amazon has not really been that selective about who it hires. And so if you are looking for a pattern, it's that they the older workers that they have tended to hire have been much more likely to get repetitive stress injuries. Amazon knows this. I talked to researchers whom their robotics team collaborated with about how do we reduce injuries? And really since the spring, they have launched a number of initiatives 
And they said that, you know, we're going to spend $300 million on health and safety. But the overriding philosophy, which comes from Jeff Bezos, it comes from um, Jeff Wilkie, who was the heir apparent to Jeff Bezos, but is now leaving. And Dave Clark, who's now the CEO of Amazon. Dave Clark's nickname is The Sniper for a reason. All of these men, their management style is, you know, we're going to create the most competitive team possible. If you can't keep up, you're cut and we move on. And I honestly think the only reason that Amazon has had to temper that philosophy at all is they've grown so large that in some places they they just can't afford the rate of turnover that they once had because they're running out of people to hire. Yeah, it's uh, Brad Stone was on my pod, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And then I had a, a guy who wrote Working Backwards. Uh, his name's escaping me right now. I don't know if it was another Jeff, but that might be me projecting. And I've known that it's a tough place to work. But man, I, I think about Taylorism and you give that guy censors. And I think it was your chapter in the book or the Wall Street Journal article or both. We talk about Bezosism. Uh, is it really just a, a, a tech souped up version of scientific management? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that we we now live in an era where, uh, you know, whether you're an Uber or Lyft driver, Instacart shopper, or you work in an Amazon warehouse, or you work, you know, driving one of Amazon's own branded trucks, all of those folks are being subject to a modern day form of um, scientific management where they're really being measured constantly. And the system, the algorithm, which is their real boss, is trying to optimize their performance at all times. And, you know, when I've talked to labor historians, there is kind of a, a more benevolent way of doing that and a less benevolent way of doing that, right? They call it despotic Taylorism after Frederick Taylor, the father of scientific management. And, you know, the more benevolent way of doing that, you kind of have to dig, but there are big you know, factories full of unionized workers making automobiles, for example, who have adopted scientific management to optimize their own labor. Of course, they have leverage, so they get to decide how that technology is adopted and applied. This is also true, by the way, very much true in Japan, and especially in Germany, they have worker councils there that decide on how technology gets adopted. Um, and obviously, it hasn't hurt their <laughs> industrial productivity. Um, but, you know, in the U.S., if workers don't have leverage, these things just to, tend to get imposed upon them. And that's why so often or pretty much every time that I can tell workers are uh, walking out uh, in, on Amazon facilities, they're not demanding higher wages. They're demanding more humane working conditions. And it's because they are subject to, you know, what I call Bezosism, which is just modern day scientific management plus technology. Yeah, it's telling that the ibuprofen in the coffee is free, right? Yes. Yeah, the ibuprofen in the coffee is free. And, um, you know, they give you health care from day one. And, you know, depending on what kind of shape somebody's in and what sort of physical liabilities they have, you might have to use it. I mean, one worker I talked to, he hadn't planned on working there for that long. He was going to work there for summer and uh, you know, six weeks into it, he got carpal tunnel syndrome and, you know, Amazon paid for his care. But what really resolved it was he quit. Granted, you know, he was 50, right? I'm 42. If I went in there today, I guarantee you based on, you know, how I feel after one of my runs, like 
that after like two or three days, <laughs> I would not be able to return. Um, you know, but again, Amazon will hire anybody and, and doesn't seem to kind of give much thought to what are the odds that this person's going to get injured based on their physical conditioning. No, I don't think I could do it either. And it actually, I was thinking about the, the other day when I received a package and I had a quick chat with the UPS guy, knowing that he's on a schedule and he doesn't want to gab with me for a few minutes. But I mentioned the, was it 79 page um, document that they're supposed to read and asked him if he had known about it. And he shook his head and said, what are you talking about, dude? Um, my sense <laughs> is that maybe they're being a little bit more lenient because they need to go at a higher rate too. But in a way, you know, that's not just there to impose control. And I think it was that interview you had with the woman, I forget her name, when you drove around in the UPS truck about how she was kind of walking you through, yeah, 80% of the time I followed the the driving directions, but 20% of the time I know enough because she'd been doing it for a long time. But I mean, that also struck me as a particularly difficult job that quite frankly, I don't think I could do. Yeah. I mean, she was really good at it, really efficient, you know, for her, it was like a ballet. She just knew how to do it so well. And I think she was around 50, but she was just so good at it that she could do her job very quickly without straining her body. And that was of course why, you know, she's a safety trainer at UPS. Um, you know, a lot of that is about, it's this kind of mental chess game of, you know, how do I make sure that I don't, one of her roles is don't touch a package more than one time before you have to get it to, you know, out the door and onto somebody's doorstep. Like she's so good that she can just minimize the number of steps, actions she's taking you know, she's only stopping once or twice a day to kind of resort the back of her truck so that everything's in the right order. Um, you know, she has this mental tally in her head that's constantly being updated of like, where's my next stop? What packages do I have to drop off? Do I want to deviate from my route? Because it's a particularly large package. It's like I'm tripping over every time I walk into the back of my truck. So you do that, you know, every day for 20 or 30 years like she has and, and you get really good at it. Um, and again, that's the difference between like a UPS and an Amazon or even a FedEx, which uses the same model as Amazon, where they're like, we're just going to hire these younger workers because we're expanding or because all of our delivery companies are actually subcontractors. UPS's drivers are employed directly by UPS. Amazon and FedEx, they hire companies that then hire workers. And part of that is to insulate them from any legal liability if there's an accident. Yeah, it struck me as absurd. Certainly not the only company to do it, but this notion that you could be wearing an Amazon uniform right? But technically not being an Amazon employee. I mean, that just seems... Yeah, isn't that wild? Those people are not Amazon employees. The ones who come to your door, not Amazon employees. Yeah, it's remarkable to me. I mean, I get it. You're not a Lyft driver. And there, I think there was that proposition in California and it's, it gets into this murky area. But yeah, do I understand why the companies do it? Sure. Right. But, you know, is it ethical? Does it sit right with me on some level? No. But then again, I'm buying things two or three times a week from Amazon because they keep me satisfied and I know what I'm getting. So yeah, it's, it's a really complicated relationship with Amazon and I could object to it on some level, but I feel like I'm complicit every time I make a purchase. But as an author, if I ignore Amazon, you know, I'm, I'm really slitting my own throat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazon's dominance in books. That's like a whole other conversation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so putting on your Swami hat for a minute, 
when do you anticipate the supply chain returning to normal? I was listening to a podcast the other day with Mark Cuban, and he says it's not a short-term thing. It's not a long-term thing. It's more of a medium-term thing. But you know, you know more about this than just about anyone right now. If you had to make a guess, when do things maybe get back to somewhat normal? Yeah, I think Mark Cuban's right. I mean, a, a lot of these things are going to get resolved, you know, sometime in 2022. There are certain things that could be uh, really hammering us through 2023, like certain parts of the chip shortage, which is bad news for automakers. I also think, however, that um, and you're starting to see some preliminary conversations. The CEO of Whirlpool was on Kramer the other day on Mad Money and told Kramer, like, I'm starting to worry that this has exposed like fundamental rifts in the availability of labor, for example, to run our supply chains because supply chains really are just people. Um, and so I think that in the medium term, a lot of the acute pain is going to get resolved. The system's going to work. All this extra uh, goods are going to get worked through the system. But I do think in the long term, there are going to be some fundamental shifts, which we as consumers will experience in some very particular ways. So for example, if companies spend more money to reshore more manufacturing, or you know, let's say they're just bringing it to Mexico from China. As consumers, we could pay more. Also, it might get expressed in ways like there will be less variety, less choice. So you'll be able to get that dishwasher or that vehicle, but maybe there aren't 15 different options. Maybe there's three is another way that this could get expressed. Because, you know, in economics, there's always these these trade-offs. Um, I don't know that it would necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, maybe we've gone too far in the direction of, let's prioritize you know speed convenience and infinite variety over resilience i think it's an interesting topic i think barry schwartz a few years ago wrote a book called the paradox of choice in which he probably heard the study of the what was it the 42 types of jam versus the six and no one bought the 42 because they didn't want to make the wrong decision but with the six they'd say oh sure i like strawberry and some high percentage of people made the made the call um, is it also, as you're talking, I'm making notes, possible that this might nudge that right to repair law? Because if it's going to be harder to buy a new iPhone, and Apple specifically says, we don't want third parties repairing it, is it going to be tougher th for them to make that art? And they're not alone, right? John Deere and a bunch of other companies basically won't let you repair something that you own. Um, to the extent that there may be some fundamental shifts, could that be something that comes out of this as well? Perhaps. I mean, if people make enough noise, I mean, one thing is, you know, I'm always, you know, never underestimate the federal government's capacity to, number one, you know, kind of be stuck in gridlock for decades on an issue. And then number two, seemingly out of nowhere, pass some omnibus legislation that just upends everything in the wake of some crisis. You know, you think of like Sarbanes-Oxley in the, in the wake of the banking crisis or, uh, you know, other, other such laws. Um, also, uh, you know, states have this incredible power over tech companies because tech companies need to do business in every state. It's not just California. I mean, California passes laws all the time that sort of become the de facto law of the land. 
Um, but you know, you also see it happening. Illinois passed a, uh, a privacy about uh, a law about the privacy rights that should be connected to your face that, you know, Facebook has been fighting tooth and nail because mm. they don't have to modify their algorithm, you know, based on your geographic location. So, you know, states do have this power to kind of force things like right to repair. Um, and, and, you know, it just, it takes, all it takes is a good crisis really. Yeah. I'm thinking a lot about some of the high school athletes, college athletes now with name, image, and likeness. And you hear deals about some junior quarterback in high school who's getting a million-dollar deal because he's going to be the next big college store quarterback. So, yeah, it's it, it will be interesting to see how some of these things remain the same or get more entrenched. But then I completely agree with you. If you look at the history of our nation, I won't be too political here, we tend not to do something until there's a crisis. Right. I mean, the, the warning signs behind some of the financial fraud were there for years. Right. There's a podcast I'm listening to now about Enron. Is it a journal one that came out? I think it is a journal podcast, right? On uh, Enron, basically the 20th anniversary. Pretty it f- might have been. I haven't listened to that one, but, but but it sounds like exactly the kind of thing I'd get into. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's good work. I'll get you out of here at this on Christopher. What book are you currently reading? I'm really uh, enjoying and highly recommend um, Merlin Mann's Entangled Life, which is a book about fungi, which like immediately sounds like it's going to put you to sleep. But the incredible thing about it is it's really just a book about how complicated life on Earth is, how little we understand it in some ways. And fungi is just kind of his lens. And also, this is I'm not actually reading it he has this incredible voice and this really nice British accent and he read the audiobook version. So it's just like this very enlightening and stimulating, but also incredibly soothing book to, <laughs> to listen to. So highly recommend, uh, yeah. Entangled life by Merlin Mann, the audiobook. Good stuff. Thanks a lot, Christopher. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.